This morning, uh, we are back in 1 Peter chapter 5, so I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there is likely a blue Bible underneath the seat around you, and you can it's there for you if you need it. You can turn in that Bible to page 1016. That'll bring you to our text this morning. This will be fun. Uh, I'm excited about just working through this with you, this particular section. As I, I am generally, <laughs> I am excited, but uh, some excite me more than others. But I titled, um, you'll see the title of the sermon is Casting All Your Anxiety on Him. I, I, I took that title right from the passage, 1 Peter 5, 7, the first part of it. Specifically, I took it from the New American Standard Bible. The only difference is the ESV puts anxiety in the plural. It says anxieties. Uh, but the Greek word is in the singular, so I prefer that. Uh, casting all your anxiety on him. But a more common, probably, to, uh, a more common um, interpretation is, um, or translation, I should say, translation is or that you might have heard or been used to, is one that we find in the New King James. And that's just only because the New King James was around for so long. And many people, including myself, memorized uh, many passages in that version. And so they're kind of stuck in your head. And in the New King James, it says casting. So yeah, the title doesn't totally reflect the NASB, but um, oh, yes, it does. I'll take it back. All right, so casting. Here's the difference of the New King James. Uh, casting all your care. Uh, upon him, for he cares for you. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So maybe that is more familiar to you, that uh, particular translation. And not only has it been familiar to me for some time now as a believer, but also very comforting. And uh, maybe also to you as well. I've used it with people. It's often paired with uh, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, another very familiar passage to Christians who've, who've been Christians for some time. There it says, do not be anxious about anything, right? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in your and your minds in Christ Jesus. So normally those two are given to folks that are uh, struggling with anxieties, uh, worries, concerns, cares. Any of you ever uh, had anything like that uh, in that area? And we know that's a, it's, a, it's a significant problem in our culture. Um, now we have, uh, if you look up, there's anxiety disorders even they talk about, and uh, all kinds of medications are being administered uh, for people struggling in, in these areas. But listen, I, I've heard 1 Peter 5, 7, as I said, referenced many times throughout my life. I've even used it, gone to it for, for my own comfort. But I personally have never looked at, at the phrase within its actual context, casting all your care upon him. I never have. I've just always assumed that uh, I know what it means based on how it's being used. But this morning, we, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at it <laughs> as we do every passage, in its context, and uh, hopefully the goal is that we might better understand it. 
and then hopefully make proper application of it to our lives. If we don't properly understand the passage, then we, we will fail to make the right application in our lives of it. And, and like with many passages, I think this is what I found to be true, we make assumptions about particular texts that people, you know, grab onto and then repeat and repost and quote. We make assumptions about those texts based on how they're commonly being used. So someone uses it this way and to speak to this particular thing, and we just assume that's what the text means. Um, so for instance, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is a text that is greatly abused and used for all kinds of things that the original writer never intended. And, he, and so you, if you look at that, that text in its context, in the letter to, to whom it was written and what was going on and what was being said, uh, you, you'll know that. In fact, in our discipleship material uh, that we encourage everyone to go through, basic discipleship material in, in, in the course of knowing the Word, we talk about how to rightly interpret the Word, and the, one of the most important things is context. Because these, le- these, these, these statements are not made by themselves, and then you're free to do whatever you want with them. They're made in a letter, and they have context behind them. And, just, uh, and, and we have to take that in consideration to consider what does that mean, you know? So our focus today, and that's why this will be fun, I, I think, anyway. It's fun for me. Hopefully it'll be fun for you. Our focus today will be on verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. Uh, but again, for some additional context, uh, we will read verses 1 through 11. And, and as I've said before, I've said this so many times, you probably are just tired maybe of hearing it, context is so important. It's so important. That, that is why we move through the Scriptures. There's a reason for it. We move through the Scriptures verse at a time, keeping it in its context instead of ripping it out and trying to make something of it that, it was, that the author never intended. And if the author never intended it, then neither should we. <laughs> okay? So, a meaning that the author never intended. And, so, and context means more than just the words, um, the statement where it finds itself, the words before it, the words after it, the letter in, in, in whole. Uh, context includes the scriptures altogether because there's really one author, the Holy Spirit, working through multiple human authors. But context also includes historical context, what's going on historically, so I understand why the words are being written, even to whom it is written. That's context. That's important. I mean, just as a simple example, and I, you know, why do you keep belaboring this? Because it's so important, and I see it getting abused all the time among Christians, well-meaning Christians, taking verses out of context and then uh, wrongly applying them as a result. But it's the simplest something if I said, I love you, sweetie, if you saw that, that phrase. You need to know context immediately to know what I'm meaning. Because I can use that same phrase, and I do, with my wife, and I use it with my daughter. Daughters, kids. But I love you, sweetie, you need to know who I'm writing that to right away to understand what I mean. I love you, sweetie, is a different thing to my wife than I love you, sweetie, is to my daughter. And if it wasn't, then that would be weird. Do you understand what I'm saying? But immediately, you, gotta, you can't just say, I love you, sweetie, and assume you know what it means. To whom are you writing this? To whom are you saying this? That's an example of context. So we get that. 
We get that when we read the newspaper, when we read books, we read them in context. But for some reason, when we come to the scriptures, we don't apply the same principles. And when I say we, I'm just saying Christianity in general, okay? I think part of it is, oh, here's a verse, I want to grab it, I want to use it for this purpose. It doesn't work. It's not supposed to work like that. So read through the scriptures, read them in their context to find out what God is really saying, what the author really means. So, um, here we go, okay? And I said all that because I think casting all your care upon him for he cares for you has not, uh, like I said, it's been, in my experience, generally that's how I've heard it, just that phrase. And I don't think it's, it's really being understood rightly because of that, okay? Are you ready to find out what it means in its context? Woo, me too, me too. Let's figure this out together right now. All right. No, I've already poured 24 hours into this, so I have an idea, and then I'm going to try to bring that 24 hours into 40 minutes. Here we go. You ready? 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. For context, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Glory be to God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion. Power, that word power, might, strength. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now remember, this is really the kind of closing out of the letter. These are kind of the final exhortations to these churches in Asia Minor to whom Paul was writing. But I, I read you all that just to bring in some context and to point a few things out. Take a moment or take, take a note of the statement that we just read that comes after the ones we're going to look at today in 6 and 7, the one found in verse 9 of this section. Just take a, let your eyes glance back to verse 9 where the Apostle Peter writes this, to these churches, the same kinds of sufferings. That's the context. That's not only the context of the passage we're going to look at, it's the context of the letter. It's one of the major themes of the letter, as you know if you've been with us for some time. The same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood, who would be the brotherhood? Other Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. 
Uh, the believers Peter wrote to were not alone, okay, we learn here in their sufferings. That's what he's telling you. are not alone. Rather, Peter said the same kind of sufferings were being experienced by other Christians throughout the world. What kind of sufferings? And I've asked and answered that question multiple times because it just keeps coming up as we move through this letter where one of the major themes is the sufferings that Peter is addressing. What kind of sufferings? Well, as we have learned, they are the sufferings that come as a result of a person following Christ among people who are hostile to Christ, to the gospel, to God. Those kind of sufferings. Or to say it another way, it is suffering related to opposition that faithful Christians face from a world that is still enslaved to their sin and living in rebellion to God. It's the opposition they experience. Right? So we, by God's grace, have been redeemed and made new creatures and now no longer rebels but living for God, unto God, not perfectly. We're still struggling with our sin, but our direction has been changed. Our affections have been changed all by the grace of God. So we think differently than the world thinks. And the power and mastery of sin in our lives has been broken. Yes? Right? For the believer, for the believer. But that is not the case for the unbeliever who still is trapped in his darkness, living in rebellion to God, and enslaved to his sin. And so those two worlds collide in this one world, and it creates opposition for us from them. Now we are to call them unto Christ, right? Not sit over them in judgment, but to call them to come into the light. Repent and believe and be saved and be changed. Yes, yes. So this is not judgment on them. They have their judge, the same one we answer to. We are called to take them the gospel. But in the process of doing that, there is opposition that is real. And it varies to one degree or another based on how many, you know, the culture we're living in or where we're living and, and how many are believers and how many are not. But wherever you find unbelievers and believers, there will be opposition the believers will experience opposition to one degree or another because we are followers and representatives of Christ and they are living in rebellion against him still and enslaved to sin and so our lifestyles even bother them as we live for the Lord. You with me? All right, so this suffering, the way Peter phrases it, multi different ways, it is suffering as a Christian. That's chapter 4, verse 16. Again, context. Suffering as a Christian. Not suffering just in general, right? You've heard me say this, yeah? Just the suffering that, you know, every human being on the planet experiences. Suffering from disease, suffering from tragedies, earthquakes, disasters, things like that. Okay? It's suffering as a Christian. It's suffering because of your of your loyalty to Christ, your connection to him, your relationship with him, your proclamation of him. It is suffering for righteousness' sake. That's how Peter puts it in chapter 3, verse 14. It is that kind of suffering. Suffering for following Christ, living for him, following him. All right? So when we get 
to Peter's statement about casting all your anxieties on him, just remember that it was made to a group of believers that were to one degree or another suffering. But why? Because of their allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ. You with me? That's important. Now, a little review of what we recently covered also, just to kind of bring us all all of it together. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5 contain a series of exhortations to the elders of the churches in Asia Minor concerning how they are to properly care for the people of God within their churches. And as I mentioned, these instructions that we, we just read and we've gone over before from Peter to the elders are always applicable. They're always applicable but even more so under the difficult circumstances that these churches faced, okay? Even more so. The proper care of the flock is even more important. And I think that's why he calls attention to it here in this letter. So it always applies, but it especially applies under difficult circumstances. The herding sheep will look to their leaders, and their leaders better be caring for them properly. They're going to have a real mess on their hands. Then in verse 5, Peter singles out the younger folks in these congregations and exhorts them to submit to the elders. We talked about this last week, why that might be and why he would single them out. But again, considering the historical context and also what we know about those who are younger and maybe being more unwilling to uh, bring themselves under the authorities and wanting to fight back and just still having that spirit within them. And here you've got the governing authorities that are all pagan and you know, Peter's telling them, you need to submit. Or you've got masters who are not good masters, and he's telling as servants, you need to submit. And, and maybe the elders are saying, that's what we need to do. And the youngers, youngers folks are saying, no, let's rise up and put them in the ground. And that would make sense. And so, but e- either way, we consider the historical context as, as we consider what Peter's saying here. So he tells them to submit. And then to everyone in the church, because... And I explained this to you. This is necessary if the young, younger folks in the church are going to do what they're supposed to do, submit to the elders, and if the elders are going to rightly and properly care for their flock, it's going to require humility of the entire congregation, humility toward one another. And so he turns to everyone in the church, and we know that because he says, now all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, right? And remember last week I said, I quoted a guy who said, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And so Peter's a shepherd. He's, he cares for this, these flocks. He doesn't want to see them fall apart, be disintegrated because of the pressures from outside. He doesn't want to see them rip each other apart. So he's giving them important exhortations. Leaders, care for your flock properly. And those of you who, who might think otherwise, submit to their loving leadership And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's the only way this is going to work. Otherwise, you'll rip each other apart. Okay? You with me? All right. You see context? Wow, this is so cool, so fun. Peter then backs up. See, we're just moving through the text. As we get to that passage, casting your cares on him, casting all your cares on him, context. Peter then backs up his exhortation concerning humility toward one another with the citation from Proverbs 3.34. 
So he cites Proverbs 3.34, specifically the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament, because if you flip in your Bibles back to Proverbs 3.34, you'll notice it looks a little different than what we have in 1 Peter. Okay, that's because he's quoting the Septuagint. So it's slightly different, the wording is slightly different, but the meaning is basically the same. And here's what he quotes. This backs up what he just said. Humble yourself, clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yeah? You still with me? Okay, so he backs it up with Scripture, his exhortation. So, as I said last time, this means that Christians have good reason to heed the command to be humble toward one another. That is, they are to clothe themselves in humility. Humility here, the word means lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than themselves, repenting of their arrogance and selfishness and selfish pride. But they are to clothe themselves in humility towards one another. Why? Because God sets his face against the proud. That is, that is not, you don't want that. All right? You don't want to be in that position. You don't want God to set his face against you. He's opposed to the proud. But on the flip side, this is awesome, he lavishes his grace upon the humble. Upon the humble. So listen, church, Peter, you have every good reason if you know who God is, to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. You want God's help and support? Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. You want God's opposition? Be proud. But, as we see in verse 6, that is not all Peter says concerning the need for humility. So he's, he's addressed now humility toward one another, but now he addresses humility toward God. Look back at the text. Humble yourselves, therefore. All right? Or therefore, humble yourselves. What's the therefore, therefore? It's what he just said, verse 5. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he uses to support his, his exhortation to the church and now he's going to use it to support this exhortation. One is a relationship to one another. The other is a relationship to God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He may exalt you. And this, this is so fun. Okay, listen. We haven't got to seven yet. We're building up, right? Which is what I titled the sermon after because I want to show you. I want to show you through the context, what that really means, okay? So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Again, this is all flowing out of, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you will humble yourselves under his mighty hand, he, may, he will exalt you. He will shed his grace on you. That's what he's saying. He'll pour it out. He'll lift you up. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. One writer says, since God is opposed to the proud, then one must certainly humble himself toward God as well. So it's not just a matter of, of showing humility toward one another. If God is opposed to the proud, and he is, then we as his people must humble ourselves before him. Yes? You with me? One writer just says, hum humility is a virtue needed in their mutual relations as well as Godward. Okay? It's needed in both places. We are to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Both ways. 
horizontally, vertically. Humility, both ways. With me? And now looking closer at verse 6. Important to look at details. Notice Peter says to his afflicted Christian readers that they are to humble themselves not simply toward God. Right? Look back at the text. It doesn't just say toward God. Right? Any affirmation would be awesome right now. Yes? Okay. I just want to make sure you're following with me. Okay? I know it doesn't say that. I just want to make sure you're flowing with me. All right? Rather, it says, under the mighty hand of God. Why that phrase? God's mighty hand, or the mighty hand of God, is a familiar Old Testament expression. As one writer, commentator puts it, and if you were, if you were as familiar with the Old Testament as the Apostle Peter was, you would know it immediately. But we're, we're not, generally speaking, as familiar. But I'm going to familiarize you right now. Uh, one commentator says, it is an expression in the Old Testament, listen, of God's irresistible actions in human affairs. Irresistible. Cannot be stopped. God does what he does. And it's related to this phrase, his mighty hand. With me? Okay. Another author says the phrasing is descriptive of his sovereign power at work. His sovereign power at work. Now, there are various areas in the Old Testament where we see his mighty hand, that phrasing, and his exercising its authority, its sovereign power. But it is uh, particularly associated with God's delivering Israel out of Egypt. Delivering Israel out of Egypt. And if you're someone who likes to look stuff up, you can write these down. Exodus 3.19, Deuteronomy 4.34, Daniel 9.15. Got it? Good. All right. So, so in their mind, and believe me, this was a big deal for them. They celebrated on a regular basis. This, we've been reading about it in Genesis. You know, this, they're moving to Egypt, there will be, but they are there, and God told them, as Thomas had mentioned last week, he, it was, a, it was a, a promise to Abraham, I'm going to take you there. You're going to be enslaved there for, you know, a long time, a long period of time, but I'm going to bring you out. And that is exactly what he does. How? By his mighty hand. So he brings them there. We see that in Genesis. His sovereignty is working this whole thing out. He brings them there, and he knows and brings them under this subjection, but he will bring them out. One writer says, just as the Lord delivered his people from Egypt, so he would vindicate his people in Asia, minor who suffered. I think... I think that's the idea. Submit your, bring yourselves under, humble yourselves under this strong, mighty hand. That same mighty hand that delivered you. Who cares for you? The same one who brought you into Egypt and the suffering related to that. 
that same one for his own good purposes and for your good is going to, he brought you out and he will bring you out of the sufferings you're experiencing now. Mighty hand. Ooh. Ah. I love the word. I, the scriptures are so awesome. That's what I hope to try to communicate to you uh, every week. And sometimes I don't do a good job, and, but I'm always trying to communicate that to you. They are a treasure chest for us. So, more context. Because remember, casting all your anxieties, it's in that context. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Not like a mighty hand to crush you, a mighty hand to deliver you. One who is sovereign over all your affairs. Tim said it today. He's not just sovereign over believers. He's sovereign over the world. He's sovereign over kings and governors. He's sovereign over weather patterns. How do you think the famine happened? It wasn't God going, oh no, what do I do? Look at the world. I better figure out how to save my people because there's famine. He brought the famine. He's sovereign. But his sovereign is beautiful for his people. Or sovereignty, I should say. Now, here's some more context. Listen, Peter said earlier, in this same letter, I want to remind you, or if you weren't here, or you were asleep, let me, let me hear it for you. You'll hear it for the first time. It's good. He said in 419, he said in 419, let those to these same people, let those who suffer, we know what kind of suffering he's talking about, according to God's will now, he says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, okay? So those who suffer for the sake of righteousness, those who suffer for following Christ, those who suffer as Christians, let them, and according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And let me remind you now of a few quotes I share with you when we looked at that verse. Let me just read them to you. For, remem- for memory's sake, and to bring it all in perspective as we consider the context here of this passage. One writer says, the reference to God's will here in that passage, 419, indicates, indicates that all suffering passes through his hands, that nothing strikes a believer apart from God's sovereign control, nothing. Another writer goes on to say, Christians do not suffer accidentally or because of the irresistible forces of blind fate. That's nonsense. That's worldly philosophy. There is no blind fate. Rather, they suffer according to God's will. He goes on to say, while this may at first seem harsh, for it implies that at times it is God's will that we suffer, upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this. It is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and in its duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. And therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. 
It is purifying us, drawing us closer to the Lord and making us more like Him in our lives. Which is what we've been addressing or what Peter has been addressing and we've been observing that this suffering serves God's good purposes, this suffering for the sake of righteousness. Conforming us more to the image of Jesus Christ. All right, now looking back again at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you. Exalt you. Exalt means to lift up. That's what it means, to lift up. One commentator says, God will exalt or lift the humble and submissive believer out of their trials, tribulations, and sufferings. And when will he do this? The text says, at the proper time. This writer understands that to mean at his wisely determined time. His wisely determined time. I think that's accurate. I think that's a good way to understand what the proper time is. Uh, Proper time is understood when the time is right. That's how it's used in Matthew 24, 45. You can write that down. Check it out later. It's used in that way, at the right time. So he will exalt you at the right time. In fact, one translation of the Bible just says it that way. Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up. And that translation adds, in honor, trying to capture the idea of being lifted up or exalted to a place of honor. Um, Some think Peter is thinking, when when we're talking about proper time, some think Peter is thinking of the return of Christ. Certainly, uh, we will be exalted when Christ returns, but there is not a strong reason to restrict uh, the phrase here to that idea alone. There's no strong reason to do that. Rather, I, I think it just means when God is ready at his time, at the proper time, according to his wisdom, humble yourselves and he will lift you up, all right? He will bring you out of your trials and tribulations and sufferings when the time is right. And then one commentator adds this concerning that, God will act to exalt his tested child when in his infinite wisdom it is conducive, favorable, to his glory and the true welfare of the one lifted up. Yeah. That's it. That is it. So let me ask you a question. Who knows better about what is good for you, Christian? You or God? Yeah, that's the right answer, but that is not always the answer we give, especially under difficult circumstances of life. Especially in this case where you're doing the right thing, you're living for the Lord, and yet you're taking a hit for it. You're suffering as a result of that allegiance to the Lord. It is in that time where you need to be able to answer the question rightly. 
Who knows better about what is good for you, suffering Christian? Who knows better? His sovereignty has brought it. His sovereignty will remove it according to his infinite wisdom when the time is right. At that moment, when it serves his glory best and brings you the best good it can bring. And then he'll remove it. But not until then. You with me? We haven't even gotten to the phrase yet. Wow. This is so fun. One writer says, part of humility is willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. I mean, you think about what's going on in the mind of a person when they start to question who knows best, what is good, or brings them the greatest welfare. Who knows best, them or God? What is going on? Why would, why would one raise such a question? May I suggest sinful pride? To actually think for a moment that you, creature, finite, limited understanding, would know better what is best for you than God, infinite, all-wise, good, and loving Father. What would bring on such a question as that? Sinful pride. Sinful pride. It just reminds me of, you know, you know, God's conversation with Job. Job, would you mind telling me where you were? You think I've done something wrong? You want a hearing before me? Would you mind telling me where you were when I brought everything into existence? And what was God doing there? And what happened to Job? He shut his mouth. He humbled himself under this sovereign God. You're right. I do not know what I think I knew. You're right. You are all wise, all infinite, all powerful. You're right. I have no reason to question you, God. And you look back at verse 10. You see, even in this context, he's going to exalt them if you, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Look back at 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, there it is again, grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will re- himself, himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So you see this flow in verse 5. He, he gives grace he gives grace to the, to the humble, right? He gives it, and in six, he will exalt you. He'll pour out his grace on you. He'll lift you up. And in 10, the God of all grace, after you suffer for a little while, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you, pour it out. It's just, you see the flow and the context. So, taking now all of this into consideration, one writer says this, since God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, Believers should humble themselves under God's mighty and sovereign hand. In the context, then, it's in their suffering. I mean, it's not limited to that, but that's what is being talked about right here. That's the context. They are to humble themselves under God's mighty hand in their suffering. They're looking at God going, what is going on? 
Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. He brought you into this. He'll bring you out of it. Trust him. Entrust your souls to this faithful creator. But Peter goes on. What exactly, what could Peter say? What does it look like? How does Peter put it? What does it look like to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand? What does it look like? Now we come to verse 7. Reading again 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Now, I'm going to get to it, but let's just look at 7 and a few of the words real quick. And then we're going to get to the connection and why if you leave verse 6 out and the rest of the letter, you've missed really the meaning of 7, okay? You ready? You're anticipating it. Good. The Greek word translated casting here simply means to throw upon, to throw upon. Uh, It's used in Luke 19.35, and they brought it, the colt, to Jesus, and throwing, same word, casting, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So you, you throw it upon something else or someone else. It's not, you don't have it, it's gone. You with me? All right. What were the suffering believers in Asia Minor to throw upon God or to stop holding on to? You can answer that from the text. Their anxieties, anxiety, their care, okay, we'll get to that. The Greek word translated anxieties, and as I said, it is singular, so the NASB Bible, another translation of the Bible, translates it anxiety. I prefer that. I think some of them include, make it plural because your anxiety might be about various things, but it's anxiety. It's in the singular, but um, it means cares, concerns, things one is anxious or worried about. That's what the word means. So, You'll see it translated various ways. Care, cast your care. That's how the Holman, uh, the New King James, one of the longest Bibles we've had, you know, and people are very familiar with. Uh, The NET, Great Bible, pluralizes it, cares, adds an S, cast your cares. Uh, Another translation just puts in worries, worries. But I prefer anxiety. I think that's a good translation. Care is fine, too. So... Remember the context? Why would Peter be writing that? Well, as one writer points out, the reader's experience of affliction and persecution naturally stimulated feelings of anxiety. Right? He's not, listen, he's not just like, hey, you know what, I had a thought. Cast your cares. And when I say that, I don't mean anything in particular. I'm just generalizing. He's writing to a group of people. He's writing to a group of people in a particular situation. And we know that, and we know that information based on the letter itself. So he's, he, and he understands what unchecked anxiety or, you know, all those things will do to a person, to a believer, to a church. It ruins them. It can ruin them. It, it distracts them. So if I'm supposed to be on mission, but I'm consumed by my anxiety concerning this thing, why? Why the suffering? Listen, just continue. Trust God. Continue to do good. Continue to make him known. Why the why? 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 When's it going to stop? 
humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. For he cares for you. One writer says, Peter wrote this to Christians afflicted by suffering and distress, and hence he realized that they faced anxiety. That's the context. Not just anxiety in general, like I'm anxious about walking into a room full of people, not that. I'll get to it in a second in application, but I'm just saying let's make sure we understand what's really going on right here, right now. Think about who he's writing to, and this is what caused him to write write the things he wrote. So they might be thinking, how long does this have to go on? You think about the situation. There, you've got this Christian, he gave the example, so you have uh, a Christian woman living for the Lord, and, but her husband may not be, and so she's trying to live in that culture, in that situation, and so he's not following the Lord, and, and she's taking a hit for it, not literally. She's... Um, Bad choice of word. She's, she's suffering as a result. You've got a master who's a pagan, and you've got the Christian working under him, and he's, he's trying to do the right thing and live for the Lord, and, and so, but the master's not being good, and he's, he's struggling. He's like, how does it have to be this way? Can't there be another way? How long is this going to go on? All these worries, all these concerns. It's distracting. It's not good for your health. It's it's not good. Take the church off course, lose their mission, mission-mindedness, lose their focus. Okay? How about the phrase, because he cares for you? Well, that's simple. Giving our anxiety to God makes, as one writer says, eminent sense, or eminent sense because he cares for you. I mean, give it, he cares for you. And one author points out that the belief that God cares marks off Christianity from all other religions, which under all varieties of form are occupied with the task of making God care, of awakening by sacrifice or prayer or act the slumbering interest of the deity, as the writer says. Christianity is very unique in this way. We have a God who does care. I don't have to get him to care. He does care for his children. You must know that. So in all of his dealings with you, he cares. He's not a God who does not care. He cares. This is why he limits the suffering. He determines the suffering. But in that suffering, he brings through it your conformity to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he cares. That is the best thing for you and I. Now, beloved, in my experience, as I was saying, we're, we're here now, verse 7 is often used independently or on its own. It, it is not attached back to verse 6. It is not attached to the context of the letter. It is just pulled out. Hey, you got a problem? Whatever it is, casting all your care upon, cast all, and, and normally they won't say casting. I'm going to show you something here. Normally, because that sounds weird, because that would imply there's something else in the sentence. Casting. You don't start a sentence like that, casting. They would say, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you, and he does care for you. But 
the, the, the meatiness and the significance of that statement is lost when it's ripped right from its context. Let me show you. And, and get this, a very popular translation of the Bible, and a, a good one, a good one, and I use it regularly, but that doesn't mean it's right all the time, and it's not right here, and it's the NIV. Very popular. They make it a different sentence. Well, look at the NIV. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Seven, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. New thought, new statement. However, verse seven is actually connected to verse six and the letter as a whole, as I've been explaining, and it's important, very important to understand that. So now let me, let me, let me put it all together. So here, just quickly, four different uh, scholarly commentaries or comments. They won't show up on the screen. I'm just going to read them to you so you understand um, why this is so significant. Concerning verse 7, one writer says, no new sentence begins here in Greek. That is true. There's no new sentence. And an important connection between verses 6 and 7 is missed by those English translations, such as the NIV and the RSV does it as well, not as popular, which start a new sentence at verse 7. But Peter continues the command of verse 6, humble yourselves with a participle phrase, casting, telling how this is to be done. Proper humility is attained by casting all your anxieties on him. Another one. The NIV begins verse 7 with the command, cast all your anxiety, as we said. The Greek text uses the participle casting. That's what it is. It's not its own unique verb, casting. The participle should be understood as an instrumental participle. Just, you know, this is, they're explaining it to you, the language. And it explains then how believers are to humble themselves under God's strong hand. Another author points out, it is not, uh, the participle structurally de is dependent on the imperative, humble yourselves. In other words, here's the command, humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Not, and here's another command, cast all your cares on him. No, here's the command. This ties back to here. Humble yourselves. How? By casting. You with me? Participle phrase. You get it? There's connecting So, the focus of this passage is not casting all your cares. That is part of it. But the real focus is humility before God's mighty hand and how one humbles themselves. That's the focus. That's the imperative. That's the command. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. He will, he will exalt you casting all your anxieties, cares upon him, for he cares for you. In fact, the NET, a very good translation, I'll just show it to you. Here's how the NET translates 6 and, 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 uh, six and 7. It's, it's, uh, it's coming. 
This is how the NET does it. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Boop. By, that was awesome. By casting all your cares on him. They, they, so what they, they make a note, though. They tell you the sentence was rearranged. They rearranged it. because That's not the order it's in. But they rearranged it so that the English reader could more clearly see the connection between casting and humble. Casting in verse 7, humble in verse 6. Because I think if people just read right over it, it's missed, and because of the way it's been used for so long, that's what they think. They just get there, they don't even make the connection. You don't make the connection, you miss it. You miss the significance of the passage. You miss its real meaning, I think. Humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, beloved, includes casting our care, our anxiety on him. It means, let me say it like this, it means fully resting in his sovereign loving care for us. Fully resting. One writer puts it this way, amid the adversities of life, Christians should trust in him who knows what we need better than we do ourselves. You could put it like this way. Humbling yourselves under his mighty hand equals fully resting in God. Holding on to your anxiety, not casting it off, is not resting in God. Are you with me? Holding on, not doing that, is not resting. It's not really bringing yourselves under and saying, God, you got it. You are all wise. You are mighty. You are loving. You are deliverer. You will bring me out of this according to your proper time. You are right. You are right to do what you're doing. One writer says, humbling oneself before him, among other things, this will involve bowing to God's wisdom, accepting the twists and turns of his providence, and entrusting all our concerns to him. One writer makes the connection, and I think it's valuable to consider it. Because... This participle is attached back to humility, okay? Casting, how does one humble themselves under God's mighty hand? By casting all their anxieties on him. Throwing, you don't hold on to him. You got it, God. You got it. You got it. I don't. There's no way I could carry this. I'm not wise enough. I'm not smart enough. You got it. You're right. I am small. You are large. Why wouldn't someone do that? He says, seeing a relationship between the main verb, humble yourselves, and the participle casting is important because it shows that giving into worry is an example of pride. The logical relationship between the two clauses is as follows. Believers, humble yourselves or humble themselves by casting their worries on God. Conversely, if believers continue to worry, then they are caving in to pride. It's like I, I said to you, it's something about, hey, no, you don't, I got this. I need to deal with this. I need to 
be consumed by this. I need to figure this out and figure out a way out. (laughs) Humble yourselves under his mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on him. One writer says, Pastor, what we worry and fret about is what we don't wish to commit to him because we trust ourselves more than we trust God. So my time is up. When we, when we begin to make application of this passage, I would say include both 6 and 7 at minimum, right, so that you don't miss really the command is humble yourselves. How might I do that? By casting these anxieties I have on him. When we consider anxieties, we see the anxieties they would have had, suffering Christians would have had. But just remember this. So, I mean, we could extend that to anything under God's sovereign care. So God might sovereignly bring things into your life. You're living for the Lord, but he's sovereignly bringing this difficult, very difficult thing into your life. So it may not just be opposition. It could be uh, other things, difficulties, disease, loss of job. You know what I'm talking about? Those things. I think I would, I would feel good about applying it to that. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. Recognize his sovereign care for you. Humble yourselves. He will lift you up when the time is right. Keep trusting in him. Don't hold on to that. Throw that to him. Demonstrate that you believe he is right. Draw close to him. He'll exalt you. Trust in him. He brings difficult things into our lives, but he has a good purpose, his glory, our welfare. All right, so proper application. Here's where I I wouldn't apply it. I wouldn't apply it to someone's sinful behavior, and as a consequence, they have anxieties, which is exactly how I've heard it used sometimes. So as an example, you covet... You're greedy. You're proud, so you're selfish. You want what you want, and you want it now. And you have access to credit cards. So you spend money that is not yours. You get into financial ruin, and you have anxiety. The response to that anxiety is not I don't think it applies here. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. I do not. That is a totally different context. He does care for you, but that's not the right response. The right, because then it's like, you know, yeah, we're about to, you know, everything's going to go under. Why? Because your job got taken away from you? No, because we spend way more than we should, and we've been doing that for a long time. And why do you do that, my friend? Because we lack contentment. You know, hopefully that's where you want to go. There's something going on in the heart that then chooses to do things that they shouldn't do that are not wise. So, as I said, covetousness, greed, those things, Uh, jealousy, wanting what Bob has or Bill has, all those things. So, in that case, you have anxiety, you bet you have anxiety. You know what you do to that? Repent of the behavior that brought it. That's what you. That's how the. That's how Pastor Jeremy would tell you to deal with that anxiety. Okay, 
In fact, that anxiety is good. As long as you, as long as it moves you, you should be worried. Because if you continue down that road, destruction's at the end of it. Hello, hello. Proverbs, right? If you, if you live in folly, what can you expect? Problems, and you see it coming, and you have worry. Good, ding, 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 ding. Repent, that's the warning sign. That's not like, oh God, you know, you'll bail us out. I just gotta have more faith in you. I know you'll get us out of this mess. That is very different from over here, Peter's readers, following Christ, living for him, and suffering for the sake of righteousness. And then Peter says to them, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. Totally different than over here. I'm just doing whatever I want. Look at this, and I'm buying stuff. And that's just one example where we... We do not live as God has called us to live. We live in sin, and then we have worry, and you should, and then cast all your care. No, repent, repent, my dear brother or sister, repent. Turn from that behavior. Repent of your selfishness. Repent of your greed. Repent of your lack of discontent, or contentment, thank you. I correct myself, it's crazy. Repent of your contentment. Just, wow! <laughs> repent of your discontentment. Be content. Repent of living for this world. Repent of your jealousy and envy of your neighbors who have more than you. Repent. Turn to God. Find contentment in him, purpose in him, value in him, and then change your spending habits. And then over time, you won't have to worry. And in all that, of course, you're crying out to God, help me. Help me to live as you would have me to live for you. But do you see the difference? All right. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Man. Oh my goodness, what a gift. What a gift. Oh, and so how we need it. Father, you are so good to us. You did not leave us alone, but you gave us your word that we might know you. We might know your mind. We might know your heart. We might know how to live before you in a fallen and broken world and as redeemed sinners. You're so good to us, Father. May we treasure this book May we treasure it and may we, we make it our aim to know it, to truly know it, not just assume things about it or what someone tells us, but to really look at it closely and examine it and see it for all that it is. What a wonderful thing you've given us in your word. Help us now, Father, even to, to live in light of the word that we, we looked at this morning. Father, thank you. Ask your blessing upon us. We, we need it, Father. We so need it. And help us, Father, to humble ourselves before you, before your mighty hand. May that be what we do. And how might we do that? By casting all our anxiety upon you. For you indeed care for us, Father. We love you so much. We love you so much. Thank you for your love toward us. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.